We may think that most of the world's languages have been studied and documented. We may also believe that languages are relatively fixed creatures and that their basic categories are stable. Wrong twice. In Northeast India, a number of languages that have been rarely studied have come up with new forms of replacing me and you. But how can you replace expressions so basic? And why would you? Hi, and welcome to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows. In each episode, we feature innovative research in the humanities and social sciences by one of our fellows. Let's turn to Dr. Daphna Oren-Megidor, who is interviewing Dr. Linda Conard, a linguist who studies underdocumented languages. Linda, first of all, what are underdocumented languages? In Northeast India, where I work, for a lot of languages, we know only the name of the language and roughly where it's spoken, and usually have a list of basic vocabulary. For some languages, we also know a bit more, usually when there's some amount of linguistic research that has been conducted by scholars from local universities. A lot of languages. Some languages. Can you give us some numbers? Northeast India is a great place for linguists. It is home to about 200 languages. This is a region that is about half the size of the country of Spain in terms of its area, or if you'd like a comparison from the U.S., its size is comparable to the size of the state of Oregon. Wow, 200 in a pretty small area. And how many of these are underdocumented? Almost all of them. There are around a dozen languages where we have good comprehensive grammars, and another dozen or so where we have a fair amount of materials, and then really the great majority that is truly underdocumented and in some cases virtually undocumented. Really? So is it only in Northeast India that there are so many underdocumented languages? No, unfortunately, this is the rather typical situation for most of the minority languages in the world. So what descriptive linguists like myself do is, you know, go and describe languages. Sounds like a battle of David and Goliath. Yes, absolutely. This may seem obvious to you as a linguist, but I'm actually wondering, why do we even need to document all of these languages? What do you mean? It's not obvious? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, there's a number of reasons. And maybe, first of all, from the human or humanistic point of view, our native language holds a very special place in our understanding of who we are, like at least for most people. For most people, using language is not just about communicating facts, uh, but there's a whole world of expressing oneself, telling jokes, playing with language, there's proverbs, particular words or expressions that are unique to a language. You know, you can think of many things. For the speaker of a majority language, it's very hard to imagine that there are people whose native language is spoken in just a few villages or even just by a few people, but that's really the case for a lot of these languages. So for those languages, it's a very real threat that the language will disappear and quite possibly once and for all. That is hard to imagine. Yes, I agree. If you speak a majority language, you do tend to take it for granted that your language is used in every domain of life and that everybody writes in your language, that you can watch TV in your language. And that's really not the case for most languages in the world. There is a human interest in producing a record of a language that will remain for future generations, even if the language may not be actively spoken anymore. But in addition to that, for linguists, language description is really important, of course. The reason is that the field of linguistics is still very much trying to understand exactly how and where languages are different and where they are the same. Can you give us an example? In the research project that I want to discuss here, I look at what we call person marking. 
That's person as in first person, second person, third person? Yep, exactly. So first person is I or me, who is the speaker, right? Second person is you, which is the addressee in the speaking situation. And third person is really, if you think about it, is anybody else who's not the speaker, not the addressee, not you, not me, anybody who's not around. He, she, it. Exactly. Now, in English, if you think about it, the verb doesn't really change much at all in terms of person, right? So you say, I go, you go, we go, they go. The only place where the verb changes is in the third person singular in present tense. So there you have to say, she goes, with this final S uh, ending, right? And by the way, this is extremely weird from a cross-linguistic perspective, actually. That you only have a different form for third person singular. Yes, and that the third person singular form has a special ending that you add to the base form, while all the other forms for the other persons, that's just the base form. And there's really a number of ways in which English and actually a few other Indo-European languages of Europe are extremely bizarre and different from most other languages in the world. Another example, which is also related to person marking, is that in English, and actually also in German, you generally have to use personal pronouns. So most people would only ever say, my friend lives in Modi'in, he goes to Jerusalem every day, where you have the he in the beginning of the second part, right? Most people would not instead say, my friend lives in Modi'in, goes to Jerusalem every day, so without the he. Maybe if you're trying to sound cool, you might say it that way. Ah, you mean like, uh, my friend lives in Modi'in, goes to Jerusalem every day. Yeah, maybe. Uh, as a linguist, I certainly wouldn't say that it's wrong to say it that way. There's certain people in certain situations that would say it that way, which, you know, actually is also very interesting to try and understand why people say things differently in different situations. But I think we can agree that the normal, as in the most common, the most default way of saying this would be, My friend lives in Modi'in, he goes to Jerusalem every day. And this is different from the great majority of languages, where it's the most normal thing not to mention a pronoun when it's perfectly obvious who you're talking about. So getting back to how languages are different from each other and why we need to do language description, it probably makes intuitive sense that there would be some ways in which English is just peculiar and not normal and different from most languages. But the thing is that unless we go and study other languages, we just don't know what's normal or what's common in languages. Only if we know about the variation of grammatical structures across different languages around the world, we know what's common and what's rare, what's normal. And then, once we know that, we can try to understand why common patterns are common and why rare patterns are rare. It's all about trying to understand why languages are the way they are. And that we can only do if we actually go and do descriptive linguistics. So what do you actually do when you do descriptive linguistics? How do you describe a language? Well, it's a big project. But basically, you have to start with the phonology, which is the sound system of the language. Which consonants does the language have? Which vowels does it have? In Northeast India, where I've been working, languages usually also have a tonal system that's a part of this. Like Chinese, right? Yes, exactly. So this means that the pitch with which a word is pronounced also contributes to the meaning. So you have to get the pitch right the same way that you have to use the correct consonant and the correct vowel. For example, 
Uh, in Monsang, the language I'm currently writing a grammar of, iku means to forgive, but iku means to be stingy. Can you repeat that? Sure. Iku to forgive, but iku to be stingy. Those sound awfully similar to me. Yeah, it's actually really hard to hear the difference if you're not used to paying such close attention to pitch if this is not a feature of your native language. But once you understand the basics of the sound system, you'll have a way of writing things down. And the way we do this is we typically use an internationally standardized system of symbols, which is called the IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet. And this is the same set of symbols that you encounter when you look at a dictionary and it tells you the pronunciation. So anyway, then you kind of start with the sounds and then go from sounds to words, uh, from words to sentences, and finally try to get a discourse structure. And this is how you describe an entire language? Uh, well, it's never going to be the entire language, but it's as much as we can do. There is a basic core of what should be there in every grammar, but it really also depends on the linguist and also on the language. So depending on the linguist, working on the grammatical description, it'll just naturally have a bit more detail here or a bit more detail there, depending on the researcher, because you know we also have topics that we find more interesting and where we dig a bit deeper, and other topics where we really just cover the basics. And of course, some languages are also just more complex in one part of the grammar. And then that part will have or should have a lot more pages dedicated to it in the description compared to the grammar of a language that doesn't have the same degree of complexity in that part of the grammar. So just to see if I'm getting it straight, the English person marking with only a special ending for third person singular, the S ending we discussed in he or she goes, will not need much description, right? But on the other hand, for Hebrew, where you have different endings for different persons, you'll need more description. I'm thinking of anishachachti, I forgot, but atashachachta, you forgot, when it's a male addressee, and so on. Or in the present tense in Hebrew, the form actually doesn't change. Anishocheach, atashocheach, I'm forgetting, you're forgetting. So in that case, it's the same form, right? Exactly. And the languages I've been doing fieldwork on in the last five years or so are very interesting, actually, with respect to this person marking on the verb. These languages belong to a group of pretty closely related languages. This group of languages has been called the Kukichin group in the past, but nowadays we also refer to it as the South Central group of languages. This is in Northeast India. Yes, it's a part of India that's located between the countries of Bangladesh and Burma or Myanmar. And the South Central languages are spoken in all three countries, obviously because the political boundaries are much more recent than the original spread of these languages. It's a group of some 50 or so languages, and all of these languages are quite closely related. What does that mean? It means that they descend from a common ancestor, and they generally haven't diverged too much. You typically can recognize very easily if a language belongs to this group. These languages are approximately as closely related to each other as the various Germanic languages are related to one another, so English, Danish, Swedish, Norwegian, German. Now, where these languages are in fact quite different from another is when it comes to... Person marking on the verb. Exactly. So there's, for example, a language called Chote, and Chote does not have this kind of person marking at all anymore. 
Actually, that's not entirely correct because it depends on the dialect. There's a dialect of Chote that doesn't have this anymore and another dialect that still has some remnants of it. Remnants would be like English has only the S ending. Yes, exactly. A second case are languages. Uh, one example is the language Mongmi Maring, where you have person marking on the verb and it works kind of the same way as it does in most European languages which means that you indicate the subject on the verb. And actually, this is the same in Hebrew in the past tense. Can you give those examples again that you gave before? You mean, ani shakhti, I forgot, and ata shakhta, you forgot. So the form changes because the subject changes. Shakhti, I forgot, shakhta, you forgot. In this type of system, the object is irrelevant, only the subject is indicated on the verb. Can you give an English-based explanation? Sure. So in English, it's the third-person singular subject that is indicated by the S ending. If it's a third-person singular object, the ending is not added. Okay? So she sees me, you get the S, right? Because she, third-person singular present. But I see her, you don't get the S, even though her is also third-person singular, just like she is. But here it's the object, and when it's the object, the S ending does not occur on the verb. To recap, in the languages you study, you've so far mentioned two forms of marking. One is no person marking, the other is subject marking. Right. So those two systems are actually found only in the minority of the South Central languages. It's, you know, anyway, what we have in those European languages I just mentioned and Hebrew, you know, maybe not that interesting. But the real fun starts when we add in object indexation. And most South Central languages do that in some way or another. Object indexation. Adding a form for the object on the verb? Yes. It means that the verb form changes when the object changes, even if the subject remains the same. So, I see her will have a different verb form compared to I see you. Actually, we can do that in Hebrew too, to add the object on the verb. At least in the more literary language. You can say, Ahavtia, I loved her, where the ha at the end indicates her. There's a pretty famous song like this, actually. Now, let's take Monsang. I see him is Kimhuna, but I see you is Kimhunatze. So here's a question for you, Daphna. What's the difference between the two forms? Uh, let me repeat again. I see him is Kimhuna, and I see you is Kimhunatze. For second person object, there's an ending te? Yes. Third person object doesn't have a special marking, right? It's just Kimhuna. And second person object gets this tze ending. So you have kimhuna tze. So in Monsang, you have a special form for second person object, which is this tze. Interestingly, you don't get this form every time you have a second person object, though. So instead of I see you, you say she sees you. The form is mhuna, and there's no tze at the end. And in fact, this form can either mean she sees you or she sees me. There's actually no difference here in Monsang between the first or second person object. But there's a special marking at the beginning of this verb form, the mhu part, which actually, if you notice it, it has a salient tonal contour, which is like a low high mhu. And in linguistic terms, this beginning part is called an inverse marker. I can't get into the details of what this means, but just note that this is a different system from the no marking or the subject indexation marking. I'll have to take your word on that. I suppose there are other systems of marking person. 
Yes, actually, there's a lot of diversity, in particular when it comes to marking first-person and second-person object. In my ongoing research, I've been finding that a lot of languages have systems of person marking on verbs where direct reference to first and second-person objects is avoided. And you can really see how creative speakers can be in working out avoidance strategies. Why would speakers avoid direct reference to first and second-person objects? Think about this example. If I say to you, I'll see you tomorrow, or I'll see him tomorrow, you know, where it's a third-person object, this can be just pure information for you, the person I'm talking to. I'll see you tomorrow. But now, let's take a different sentence with a second-person object. If I say to you, I'll see you tomorrow, or maybe I'll see you tomorrow, okay? So we already have a second-person object. Then this would usually be either a promise or a threat. And this is all depending on the prior negotiations that you and me had about this and our relationship to each other. And the same holds for first-person object forms. Will you come see me tomorrow? Yes, thank you. With a first-person object, it's usually not really a question, but typically, you know, a request, a plea, a command, you know, depending on how you say it, to whom, and in what situation. If first- or second-person objects are involved, our communication is really of a different nature. People can become very creative in indirectly saying things and hinting at things only, rather than being explicit. Moving to the South Central group, there are a number of languages where the first-person object form does not actually have a first-person marker, but something else. In languages such as, for example, languages called Tedim or Sizang, you find a form that historically means to come towards and now means me or to me or to us. So now I see we're getting to historical linguistics, and I do want to ask you more about that. But first, let's stick with this example. How do you get from to come towards to a first-person object marker? So what we can reconstruct here is a verb to come, which then develops into a directional marker, so a grammatical element that indicates direction, and specifically direction here or towards here. So you could use this marker with a motion verb, and it indicates the direction of motion towards here, where here is wherever we are located. So this marker here, this grammatical element, can be used with a verb like to swim. And then in combination, this would give us a new word, to swim here. This use of this grammatical marker with verbs of motions would be the first step in this development. In the next step, the use of this form could be extended to other verbs, And now we could use it, for example, with the verb to give. And then, with this element, the new expression would be to give something here, you know, in the sense of towards here. And then to give here is used to mean to give me? Exactly. It's a metaphorical or actually metonymic expression. So instead of give me the book, you'd be saying give the book here. Oh, sure, you can do that in English too, right? Give it here or pass it over here. Yes, the difference is that in a language like Sizang, it's the normal conventionalized way of saying me or to me when you say what literally means, or at least historically meant, here or towards here. So now let me ask you about the historical part. How do you know whether a form would or would not originally be a first-person marker? There is a body of research that has reconstructed the different person markers that would be expected for subject and for object, So based on that, we can say what would be expected. And I'd like to give you one more example. In Mizo, which is the majority language of the state of Mizoram in Northeast India, 
what you used to say rather than give me would be something like give to people or give to somebody. So instead of explicitly saying give me the book, you'd say give somebody the book. And the form for first person object in Miso is actually me, which just happens to be the Miso word, not to be confused with English me for first person singular. This word me in Miso is the word that originally means person, human being, people, and later on also means somebody. It's actually the first part of the ethnonym Miso. Give somebody the book to mean give me the book. So sort of like in English where somebody could say, give a gal a break. And of course, they're the gal. Yes, and so this is another strategy to avoid explicitly saying me or to me. One last example. Remember the Monsang form where she sees me and she sees you is the same form? Uh, sure. Well, that's okay. But it was the same form for first or second person object in Monsang. In a research paper I'm currently working on, I argue that what we can reconstruct here is a third person intransitive form. Intransitive means that there's only a subject and no object. So, for example, he goes, he swims, he dances. Those are all intransitive verbs because there's no object here. And in the case of the form for she sees me and she sees you, right, the same form, I argue that the original form means something like she is a seer, if you will, somebody who sees. Hold it. So somebody would literally say she is a seer to actually mean she sees me? Yes, to mean either she sees me or she sees you, exactly. So actually leaving it vague and underspecified whether it's actually she sees me or she sees you. Weird. So if you want to, I don't know, say, if she sees me there, she'll hate me, you'd actually say, if she is a seer there, she'll be a hater. You got it. That's really weird. I'd say not weird, but genius. You make an agent noun out of a verb then all of a sudden you wouldn't have an object anymore, right? Nouns cannot have objects, only verbs can. So that's also a very elegant solution to the problem of avoiding reference to an object. You create a noun out of the original verb and poof, there's no need or actually no possibility to mark an object. This is so creative, all of the many ways to avoid explicitly mentioning the object. It really is. And what is really fascinating is to see how all of these languages have ended up with different avoidance strategies. As a historical linguist, you can reconstruct what the original meanings of these expressions were. You say reconstruct, so there's no written sources. It's actually like prehistory or archaeology. Yes, these languages have no history of writing. Whatever we can say about the historical meaning of a form is based on comparing all of these languages, like all of the modern languages, and then reconstructing forms with particular meanings. And you can do this in a reliable way? In many cases, yes. What's great is that you have the same building blocks, if you will. The inventory of forms with particular functions that you can reconstruct to the common ancestor of the South Central branch. We would call this the Proto-South Central language. And then you can see how these building blocks essentially show up with different functions and, you know, usually slightly different forms in the different modern languages. That way, you can really track the development of grammatical elements. That allows you to claim that you start out with something that means come here or something that means person or people and then ends up indicating a first person object? Exactly. And what's also important is that I reconstruct what the form originally meant. 
What I'm getting at is this. It is very possible that at least in some of the cases, this form that used to be an expression that did not explicitly refer to a first-person object did eventually, over time, become conventionalized as a first-person object form. And now, it's actually no longer an avoidance strategy. It has become the regular way to say me or to me. So you're saying that nowadays it's okay to say me or to me, and only in the past it wasn't okay. Well, I don't know. What's quite possible or even certain is that nowadays there are also avoidance strategies and metaphorical expressions and whatever that native speakers have at their disposal if they feel the need to avoid referring explicitly back to themselves as objects. So what's actually certain is that there are new avoidance strategies floating around in the language, if you will, that are only used in particular situations, not across the board. What could happen is that over time, such avoidance expressions will start getting used more and more, getting them on the road to becoming the default expressions. So in principle, new first and second person object forms may be out there somewhere in the ether of these languages already. Variants are always around, And that's exactly how languages can change over time. It's, you know, kind of like mutations in biology. We haven't discussed an obvious question yet. Why? Why are there expressions that avoid explicitly referring to the first-person object? The why question requires more speculation. Why is it the case in these languages that they all come up with expressions that avoid explicit reference to first-person object? And actually, there are also innovative strategies that refer to both first- and second-person object. This is something we didn't have the time to discuss. As I was saying earlier, first- and second-person are special. This is me, the speaker, and you, the addressee. Everybody else is easy to talk about. They can't hear what I say anyway, right? But anything that involves you and me requires careful ways of putting things. Getting back to our example from before, if you want to make an appointment with somebody, you can say, can I see you tomorrow? Or can you come see me tomorrow? And each of these ways of saying it has different connotations in terms of who's the initiator or the agent or has a status of more power. So one way to resolve this is to say, can we meet tomorrow? Although there are certain connotations or implications that come with this expression too. Perhaps putting you and me on the same level. So you can see that talking about you and me is loaded. It must be because of that that you find lots of alternative expressions in this regard. Now, why it is in this area in Northeast India and in these South Central languages that we find this considerable degree of diversity in person marking on the verb is honestly still not clear. It seems like maybe it should at least partially have something to do with cultures that pose taboos on self-reference. It's quite possible that that's a part of it, but this really requires more research, ideally interdisciplinary research, that also involves anthropologists and sociologists. In my own historical linguistic research, I'm working out which languages have person marking systems that include innovative forms for first or second person objects. My next steps will be to see whether these languages are spoken in a contiguous area, you know, to look into effects of language contact. And I'll need to check whether these developments are limited to the same set of closely related languages to see if anything might be inherited from a common ancestor language. So these are still missing pieces of the puzzle. And I'm very optimistic that looking into those questions will really get us closer to understanding why and how the development of these innovative forms happens. You have been listening to Research Bites, 
the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows in the Humanities and Social Sciences. In this podcast, we hope to offer a taste or a bite of the research taking place in our society and the kind of conversations taking place in its offices, hallways, and indeed the kitchen. Additional episodes discuss matters such as medieval women's letters from the Cairo Geniza and religious mobility and identity among Christians in Kenya. Our thanks to Dr. Ben Belek, who helped produce this episode, Omri Bendor is our series producer, and Ori Dror is our sound recorder and editor. The Buber Society is a German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode and about additional episodes, please visit our website, buberfellows.huji.ac.il. That's buberfellows.huji.ac.il.